Why? It's a pretty common word around our house with three kiddos, four and under. Why? Whether it's from a curious child asking their mother about the color of the sky or from the flustered father assembling furniture made in China (laughs) or even from the Old Testament saint whose skin festered with boils while he was accompanied by his only surviving family member or from the very lips of the suffering Savior dying on a tree, we all have asked why. Think about this for a minute. Who asks about a person? And what asks about a thing? When asks about a time? Where asks about a place? And while these are important questions, they're pretty straightforward, right? This person did this thing at this time in this place. But when we ask why, we ask for purpose. What was the intent? What was the motivation? How is this adding purpose? This goes much deeper than just black and white facts. Asking why is what separates humans from animals. Animals are concerned with who, what, when, and where. My owner brings me food in the morning to my bowl. But animals are not concerned with why. And ironically enough, Why is the only question atheists can't give a straight answer to? If we are here by mere accident, then life has no meaning or purpose. There is no why. Why gets us up in the morning? Why brings purpose to love and joy and, yes, even pain and suffering. And this is the very question the prophet Habakkuk is asking God. Here in our first of three sermons in this series, we have a dialogue of why. Go ahead and turn to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, and we'll start our journey through this dialogue of why. I'll go ahead and save you some trouble. It's on page 737 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. While you turn there, I'll fill you in on the background. Habakkuk was a prophet to Judah. And this prophecy was received sometime during the Babylonian rise to power in 605 BC, which would eventually lead to the exile of Judah, which happened in 597 BC, somewhere in there. We know very little about the person of Habakkuk. Jewish legend claims that he was miraculously transported to Daniel while in the lion's den to bring him some food. Uh, But this is all legend. 
He was most likely associated with the temple because of the, as you look through this book, you see some very musical and liturgical kind of themes. So it seems like he might have been part of the temple. He was contemporaries with the prophet Jeremiah. But other than that, we know very little about him. The king of Judah at this time that this prophecy was received is Jehoiakim. He was the son of the faithful king Josiah, but Jehoiakim did not carry on his father's faith. Jehoiakim was more interested in taxing the people to build his own palace than fearing the Lord. He did not worship Yahweh and was unfaithful. Since Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk, we can use the book of Jeremiah to kind of fill us in on the background of what's happening. Jeremiah 7, verses 8 through 11, gives us this background of what's happening in Judah. What's the state of Judah at this point that we can kind of see what's happening in Habakkuk? Jeremiah 7, 8, verses 8 through 11 says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, Become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The northern kingdom, if you recall that Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern and and Judah, the northern kingdom was decimated by the Assyrians at this point. So the only hope for a faithful people of God is in Judah. But... They have become a den of robbers. Sin abounds. And out of this chaos, we find the prophet crying out to the Lord in this first part in a dialogue of why. Habakkuk questions God's justice. We'll start in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, let's pause there for a second. The word oracle simply means a burden. So Habakkuk receives this burden. And the text says he, he saw it, which is important. We'll come circle back to that in a little bit. But he, he sees this vision. And this is similar to what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Or really whenever a prophet receives revelation from God during this time, it was really through a vision of some kind. So Habakkuk receives this burden, and then you can kind of see it it looks kind of like a psalm, the way it's situated in your Bible. So this is a song. Habakkuk is mostly a song. So he sees this burden, and he puts it to music. Our first line in this dialogue is a question posed by Habakkuk in verse 2. He asks, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. And when he says, cry for help here, he is desperately crying out like his life depends on it. It's the same word that describes the blind men crying out for sight from Jesus. 
or the disciples crying out for Jesus to save them from the waves or the martyred saints beneath the altar in Revelation 6.10. And yes, it's even the same word used by Jesus as he cried out on the cross in Matthew 27.50. So God's prophet is crying out to God for help. And he's been doing it for a long time, apparently. He says, how long, O Lord? How many times have, I, have we prayed similar prayers? How long, O Lord, must I deal with this difficult marriage? How long, O Lord, must I pray for the salvation of my family member, but you don't seem to listen? How long, O Lord, must I pray for healing, but you don't seem to care? Habakkuk is also crying out violence. And this term, violence, is a common theme. It's repeated a few times here in the first couple of chapters. What does he mean by violence? Verse 3 may help us. Let's keep reading. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk isn't crying out to the violence of an outside nation. The violence he is complaining about is the sin within the people of God. Without disciplinary action. He sees sin in Judah and no judgment for this sin. He's seeing injustice here. God doesn't seem to be doing anything about their sin. Again, Jeremiah is helpful to us in understanding how bad it really is in Judah. Jeremiah chapter 11 verse 10 says, They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. They have broken the covenant that God had made with their forefathers. Well, what's he talking about, this covenant? Well, the second time that Moses gave the people the law just before they entered the promised land, in Deuteronomy 28, God essentially tells them, if you go into my land and obey my rules, it will go well with you. If you choose to disobey, it will not go well with you. You will be cursed. And Judah is breaking this covenant by offering sacrifices to other gods, by stealing and murdering, swearing falsely, Committing adultery. Judah is plainly breaking the covenant. They're committing violence upon the law of God. And God seems to be sitting idly by watching it all take place. So Habakkuk questions God's justice. Let me ask you. This is all from Habakkuk's understanding. We're going to keep reading and see that that's not the case. But let me ask you. What's worse, a criminal committing the crime or the judge letting the criminal off the hook? 
I would say the latter. To put it another way, what's worse, a man competing as a woman or the governing body allowing it to happen? So Habakkuk is bringing some serious accusations to the Holy One of Israel. And he keeps going in verse 4. He says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The law is essentially useless if God is not judging his people, if he is not holding up his judgment upon his people. The law is, is paralyzed. The imagery of this word paralyzed was used to illustrate a camel's bent leg. When it, when it lays down, its legs were bent. And this is illustrating this bent leg being tied up to where it cannot extend its legs and stand up. What he's communicating is that the hands of justice are tied because even God seems to not care. So how can we summarize Habakkuk's first line in this dialogue of why? Habakkuk asks God, why doesn't he judge his wicked people? And starting in verse 5, we see the Lord's answer. And what we see here is God's perplexing justice. God's perplexing justice. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. This is an oracle, remember, that the prophet saw while he was looking at Judah's sin, while God seems to be idly looking by. But now God turns the tables and commands the prophet to look and see. Habakkuk's gaze has been just in front of him, and God commands him to gain some perspective. Like a child frustrated that he can't see the stars in his new telescope, the father lovingly comes over and turns the telescope around because the child was looking in the wrong end. And just think about this. The fact that the story goes on, that the fact that there is a, a verse 5 and God responds is a testament to God's covenanted faithfulness. God could have just dismissed the prophet. Who are you, oh man? God could have just dismissed Judah. But because of his covenanted faithfulness to them, he responds to Habakkuk. Though Judah was unfaithful to the covenant, God is faithful to his and responds to this prophet. And what does he say? Look among the nations and see. What does he say? Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. If told. Wonder and be astounded, huh? Sounds pretty good so far. God's finally going to do something. He's, he's going to wow the prophet. He's going to blow his mind. Maybe even send some fire and brimstone from heaven on this stiff-necked people. But look at what the Lord says in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth, to seize dwellings not their own. 
pause real quick. Now, who's the Chaldeans? It's just another name for the Babylonians. And who were these people? Well, let's keep reading and find out. Verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God is raising up this nation, these people described as predators of the animal kingdom to prey upon his people. Now just put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes for a minute. You complain to God about all the violence you see and God says he's going to fix the problem but by using something worse than what you're complaining about. Habakkuk should wonder and be astounded, but not in the way we initially thought. Now verse 5, wonder and be astounded. That's quoted by Paul in Acts 13.41, and he's actually speaking to unbelieving Jews, and he's telling them to repent or be like Judah who was brought under judgment of God. So this, this perplexing judgment of God using the Babylonians to judge his people rings throughout history all the way to Acts 13. So God answers Habakkuk's question of why. He is going to judge his people, but will do so by raising up the Babylonians to judge Judah. God is ferociously violent against his people's sin. And he will judge it through any means necessary. As a side note, and like, like Taylor and I were joking about earlier, I'm, gonna, I'm posting this online. If you would like to you know, see this manuscript later, feel free to, to look at it. And you may have questions. There's kind of a side note here, but we've got to keep going. This right here, what's happening here in Habakkuk thus far, is an example where divine sovereignty and human will meet together. See, Babylon, Babylon desires to take over Judah, ultimately to worship their own might. But God desires Babylon to take over Judah to judge them for their sin. So it's resulting in the same action, but it's done for completely different reasons. Now let's keep going in Habakkuk. And let's look at Habakkuk's confused yet faithful response. What God replies with understandably raises more questions for the prophet Habakkuk. And we see his response to God's answer in verse 12. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Look at Habakkuk's response to God's perplexing justice. What does he do? He affirms God's holiness. He even uses the covenant name of God, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, knowing that he is faithful to his promises. You can see him affirm God's promises by saying, we shall not die. He knows judgment may come, but Judah shall not die because of God's covenant faithfulness. He also affirms that this evil nation, is, this, this nation, this Babylonian nation is definitely established by God, is being raised up by God. He affirms that. But he's interpreting it correctly. He says it's for reproof or discipline. He affirms God's holiness and sovereignty over Babylon's sinful actions. But there is still a question Habakkuk voices in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Why use an evil nation to judge a less evil nation? Where in Judah, justice never went forth, Babylon creates their own standard of justice. Where in Judah, Habakkuk is witnessing violence within this society, Babylon brings violence to all societies. Habakkuk is seeing the wicked surround the righteous in Judah, but Babylon gathers the righteous and the wicked like sand. Does God really mean to use a worse nation to judge Judah? So essentially Habakkuk asks, why does God use a crooked pen to draw a straight line? Sure, Judah was wicked, but how could God ever allow a more wicked nation to judge his people? Let's keep reading. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with a, with a hook. He's referring to Babylon here. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. He then describes mankind as having no ruler, basically. If Babylon is going to judge everything, if Babylon is going to take over everything, and God seems to be sitting idly by, there might as well be no ruler in Habakkuk's mind. In Habakkuk's mind, God makes mankind like fish in the sea, and Babylon uses them for his own pleasure. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? 
he's using this fishing imagery, I think, because um, when taking captives, Babylon would a lot of times take captives using nets, right? They would, they would gather them up in nets and drag them away. Or they would line up the captives and put hooks in the bottom lips of their captives' mouths so that they couldn't run away. They had to all walk in a line and be brought away. This proud, evil nation tramples upon nations and even worships its own power and might. Will this continue? Will the Babylons keep destroying nations unjustly? Will the earthly powers have the final say? Let's think about the first question. Go back to the first question real quickly. His first question was, why are you letting the wicked go free in Judah? Which was answered by God saying, I am raising up the Babylonians to judge them. Which answers the question, but it leads to more questions with Habakkuk saying, okay, then why are you using a more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation? And here the chapter ends. We don't have much of an answer to Habakkuk's second question at this point, but we do have a clue that leads us to the point of the whole book. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk waits for the Lord. He trusts the covenant promises of the Lord. The Lord told him to look and be astounded. He tells him to zoom out and gain some perspective. So Habakkuk goes up to the metaphorical watch post, the highest point in the city, to look unto how the Lord answers. Not all of Habakkuk's questions were answered yet. And that's okay. There's still so much from this passage to be gleaned. The overall point of this passage shows us that God will use any means to judge the sin of his people. While studying this passage, I couldn't help but notice the similarities between Habakkuk's situation and the death of Jesus on the cross at Golgotha. So you see, the prophet was surrounded by Judah's sin, and Jesus bore the sin of his people. Habakkuk was broken over their sin, and Jesus was broken for their sin. God used the sinful intentions of the Babylonians to judge his people and used the sinful intentions of the Jews to judge his son. God truly does work 
all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, including the sinful intentions of others. Now, Habakkuk's accusations towards God did not hold their weight ultimately because we know that God was not idly looking at Judah's sin. I need y'all to understand this and get this. God never idly looks at sin. God is never apathetic towards sin. He was not looking at this situation. He was not looking idly at Judah's sin. He was actively looking at his son who bore the sins of his people on the cross. Romans 3 tells us that in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, even the sins here in Judah, so that he may justify through faith in Jesus. So instead of this judgment from Babylon being ultimate, it is turned into reproof or discipline that ultimately points us to the cross. Because if Babylon comes in and wrecks house with Judah, what happens with their sin? They still have a sin problem. This ultimately points us to the ultimate judgment being satisfied, the wrath of God being satisfied at the cross. Now, for the person who has not trusted in Christ as the substitute for their sin, listen very carefully. The judgment that Judah experienced under Babylon is a walk in the park compared to what awaits you. The Babylonian judgment is a foretaste of the wrath to come. And you've got to ask yourself, who is going to bear that wrath? Are you going to bear that wrath or is Jesus? Jesus bore the wrath of all who would trust in him by dying the death that we deserve on the cross. If you do not trust this, my friend, you will bear the wrath yourself by spending eternity in hell separated from God. That is what awaits those who do not trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus who freely bears your punishment on the cross. And now Christian, my brothers and sisters in Christ sitting here in this room, this should challenge us to take sin seriously. Are we broken over our sin like Habakkuk was over Judah's? Since Jesus has taken eternal punishment for you, what we experience now is God's faithful discipline. God is faithful to discipline his people through any means necessary. We should ask ourselves, what sin are we 
idly looking at in our own lives? What sin have we grown apathetic toward? Because, my friends, that sin was already bore by Christ on the cross. Repent of this sin. Keep continuing. Repent of the sin that so easily besets us. And throw yourself under the shield of the cross. Habakkuk is an example of how seriously we should take sin and how glorious we should see the cross. But he is also an example of how to approach God with our questions. He's also an example of how to approach God with our questions. Let's observe, let's just review real quickly what Habakkuk did in this passage. Now first, he went to God with his questions. He doesn't write in his journal like I did as a moody, depressed teenager and just keep these questions to myself. He didn't do that. Habakkuk asks God why. He doesn't keep it to himself. He goes to God. Next, what does Habakkuk do? He asks God why, but he asks God why. Do we ask God why? Because sometimes in our frustration, we, we tend to ask God a question, but really it's just venting, right? Why did you let this happen? You're not really asking. You're making a statement. Why would you let this happen? Why didn't you heal them? When we go to God, ask him genuinely, God, why? And then sometimes we ask like impossible questions of trying to draw attention more to the question than actually trying to get an answer. I, that happens to me all the time with college students. <laughs> and really what's happening is we're trying to glorify the question rather than trying to humbly, genuinely seek an answer from God. And then finally, how does Habakkuk posture himself after he asks God why? So he asks God why and then he asks God why. And then what does he do after he does that? He listens and anticipates God's answer. I know for me, when I've asked God why during some very dark situations, I was praying to God, but I was actually looking for an answer in some other means. Sure, I may have prayed to God, but I was relying on an impression to give me an answer or some sort of physical sign, like a fleece, right? Like Gideon, which was an act of unfaithfulness, if you recall. That's not how we should ask God why. Gideon was an example of unfaithfulness in that scenario. So knowing that God no longer continues his inspired revelation because he has it written in his word, when we ask God why, seek answers through how he has spoken. When we ask God why, anticipate and, and seek answers through his word. And seek it through how we're supposed to talk to him, which is prayer. 
So when you ask God why, ask God with an open Bible and calloused knees. Habakkuk's biggest question was, how will you judge the sin of your people? And God ultimately answers, we know this, looking back on completed revelation in his word, God ultimately answers by sending his son. The same God who is trustworthy enough to answer this biggest of questions of our sin problem, he is trustworthy for any other question. Which is the question I'll leave with, with us today. Even when we don't understand, will we trust God? And that is what we will cover next week in Habakkuk chapter 2. How does this prophet respond? How does this dialogue keep going? Let's pray together. God, ultimately, we know that the judgment that we have earned was ultimately bore on your son on the cross. And God, by faith, we live in light of that reality every day. God, I pray for the person here in this room that has not trusted in Christ as the bearer of the wrath, the bearer of the judgment. I pray that they would fling themselves on the cross. I pray that for those struggling with hard, difficult questions, God, will we keep approaching you through your word, asking you, coming to you, asking why with an open Bible and calloused knees. You are faithful. You are faithful God who has answered our biggest problem by sending your son to die on the cross for us. And because of that, you are faithful to deal with our questions as you see fit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.